His heart had leapt in sympathy with that fugitive smile, but he would not show it. He liked her courage and her youth, indomitable at an age when the run of Danesacre's wives and mothers were passing maturity. Why, he thought, she must be thirty and over. She had the skin of a young woman and the figure and poise of a girl. Her small body radiated health and abounding life. He liked the way she had balanced between her belief in her luck and her apprehension of yawnings in the ground under her feet. What he did not like was the element of recklessness and insecurity in all her enterprises since the Suez Canal had opened for her, like a door opening on a new world. She had rushed into her world. Danesacre had had more than one occasion to recall the fact that she was Mark Henry Garton's niece. They said she was turning out such another adventurous fool, and hopefully prophesied the crash. Mary could not conceive the possibility of a crash. Memphis could, and he was often afraid for her. When she would not listen to him, he was angry, and when her disobedience was justified, he trembled, because success gave a fillip to her willfulness. What could you expect with a chin like hers? It was the spit of Mark Henry's. He could not make her see that the present flood of orders was bound to slacken. She behaved as if the yard would go on forever working at full pressure, turning out ships for firms who could not get them fast enough, as if freights would go higher and higher beyond their present dizzy altitude. They would go higher, but they would drop again. Memphis did not share the prevailing complacency about the splendid times he lived in. The seventies, aye, and the forties and fifties and sixties were too splendid for his fastidious stomach. He knew how the thing worked. There were good years, when wealth added into vast, towering fortunes and threw up fabulously ugly buildings and great factories and workshops. In their shadow grew and spread congested areas of meanly conceived towns, and houses filled with men and women who sometimes had enough to eat and sometimes had not and then they grumbled, or starved to death, or rioted, and in any event lived or died disregarded by the master brains who were riding in on the swelling tide of the nineteenth-century progress. The process caught up women and little children and squeezed the blood out of them, and a few misguided people, mistaking progress for murder, kept trying to stop it and were dubbed radicals and traitors for their pains. Memphis had no sympathy for radicals and little for oppressed men and women. The sight of misery angered him. But he knew what happened at the climax of every period of expanding trade. The expansion just went too far, until the warehouses and wharves were glutted. Then the factories closed down, and the shipyards fell idle and silent, and the people in the dark quarters of towns and cities, and in the squalid cottages of picturesque little villages, were brought face to face with such elemental things as hunger and disease and death and faced them as best they could, as their forefathers faced pestilence and black death coming on them by an act of God, until the hard times passed and good times began again. And if John Mempis cared nothing how many men and women starved to death during the hard times, he cared agonizingly for the safety of Gartens, because Gartens was Mary Hervey and he loved her, with a tight-lipped craving to possess not her body only, but her mind and soul that never left him. He had lost her, and he ached over her courage and her willful venturing and her warm beauty. The world might choke to death with all its overreaching greed for all he cared, but not Mary.'